us, please. So, Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together and for those that will join us online, um, either now or later. I pray that you'll open up your word and that uh, we will be receptive to what we receive. I pray, Father, that you'll use me as a, uh, a mouthpiece, as a vessel, and uh, that I'll be able to uh, communicate clearly what you want me to communicate. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, going back to uh, 1 Corinthians 7, which we covered for several weeks the Apostle Paul was addressing um, questions that they had. And so we saw the, these questions related to uh, to marriage largely and what one should do uh, if they are married or if they are engaged and so forth. And the Apostle Paul basically said, hold on loosely to everything down here. Don't change your situation because the world in its present form is passing away. Now we have more practical concerns and this regards uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, which doesn't seem like it would be a very practical concern of ours in 21st century uh, America, but it's it has application that uh, I think we'll see over the coming weeks. So we're going to go ahead and read verses 1, uh, 1 through 7, I think is what I have up there, Lige. This is the English Standard Version. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that Quote, all of us possess knowledge, unquote, and this, quote, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, and, unquote, and that, quote, there is no God but one, unquote. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods, unquote, and many lords, quote, unquote, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled." So we're going to get into this underlying theology that Paul is giving us uh, before he launches into the actual um, practical uh, response to eating meat sacrificed to idols. But uh, let's just firmly establish the Corinthians either made this inquiry or it's something that, that was reported, all right, that people were eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in the ancient world, it was very common to offer animal sacrifices. Obviously, you can read through the Old Testament, and you can see that that is exactly what was done. They offered animal sacrifices to their gods, and Israel offered animal sacrifices to Yahweh. Um, and for similar, though not for the same reason, um, there was a recognition that, that God or the gods are above us and are worthy of our lives, right? And so the animal essentially, especially in Israel, <clears throat> represents the life of the worshiper. So rather than laying on the altar and saying, you know, here, take my life, you're offering this animal as a substitute, so to speak. Um, and if not that, then it, it was their currency, right? Um, so, and you can even go to India today and see that they still offer, you know, food offerings and so forth. 
to the gods. Um, yes, yeah, sustenance, life. It's it's connected to us offering our life to the divine. Now I'm I'm overgeneralizing because I'm trying to show this impulse that exists within human beings in the natural because we're made in the image of God. So when we come to the 20th, 21st century and we start having all these atheists that, you know, there is no God and so forth, there's really very little precedent for that in history. Um, we're, we're altering long-standing uh, precedents that demonstrate clearly what human nature is, even if it was misplaced offering, there was still a sense of, no, God or the gods are above us and they're worthy of worship. And, you know, God is worthy of worship and he's worthy of my life. And so even though we might think of them as just being just primitive pagans and so forth, you know, they're smarter than atheists, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So even somebody that is offering you know, let's say in India, you know, a food offering to a false god, they are at least recognizing that there is something other than them, right? And so uh, to that degree, they're ahead of us. You, you know, you and I might um, have problems with the way, uh, for instance, Islam uh, worships Allah and some of the things that they do and demand and so forth. And we're seeing that coming out of Afghanistan right now with this harsh treatment of people and uh, you know, uh, these uh, extremists are, are back in control again. But again, they're recognizing that there is one God who's worthy of all of this. Now, every time somebody gets a hold of religion, they use it for, you know, their own purposes, right? They use it for power, and these people certainly are doing that. So I'm not uh, describing motive. I'm simply saying that this teaches us something about human nature. And so what we need to do is we just need to direct that natural impulse um, uh, to the, the correct God, to God in an accurate sense. Um, there is a philosopher um, that calls worship of God a properly basic belief. In other words, it's not a belief that is outlandish or strange or, or that needs to be justified. It's properly basic, right? It, it's, it, essentially, it essentially makes the most sense, and I shouldn't have to produce reasons why I believe in the existence of God. I believe in the existence of God in the same respect as I believe I'm a real person and you're a real person. Those are properly basic beliefs. I don't need to prove that you're really there, okay? Any more than I need to prove that I really exist. Now, does that mean I can't doubt? Sure, I mean, you've had vivid dreams and so have I. I, mean, I you know, it's possible I'm dreaming this. Certainly doesn't feel like it, but it's possible. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you're dreaming and then you wake up, but you really didn't wake up? You're still in a dream? <laughs> I've had that happen. You know, and you're like, okay. But then something, hey, and I got a secret for you, right? If you ever want to test whether you're in a dream, it's true. Um, there was a movie that was made some years ago um, about, uh, I think it's called Lucid Dreaming where people try to give direction to their dreams, right? Um, but one way to tell is you can't turn on the light. You can't make light happen. You can't turn a flashlight on. If you try to turn uh, a light on in a room, it won't come on. 
Ah, now it's tickling you, isn't it? You're going to try to test that out. I think that's kind of interesting. It's true. It's true. And the thing is, I remember seeing that in, uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, uh, Art, oh, not Art, uh, I'm trying to think of Art Link Letter, and that's how I remember this guy's name. There is a, a director out of Austin, Texas, uh, from uh, UT, and his name is Link Later. I forgot his first name. But he produced this movie on lucid dreaming, and that was something uh, that came out of the movie, and it's something I've observed in my dreams since then, you know? Because I remember I had a dream not too long ago, and I tried to turn on a flashlight, and it wouldn't go on. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong with this deal, right? Hey, God is the only one that can produce light, right? So, kind of interesting. Um, so, nonetheless, there is this, this properly basic belief in the existence of God, um, and human beings have responded to that forever, really. So, um, we even see in, um, in the scripture, in Israel's history, that uh, there was a willingness of these pagans in the land to offer sacrifices to gods like Molech, Chemosh, and Adramalek. They offered their firstborn children, right? Like living children to these gods. It was a, a, a representation of Molech that had a kind of a, a hollow uh, in his stomach, and they would take this living baby and burn it alive in the hollow of that God's stomach, um, which, you know, that sounds horrible, right? Human sacrifices. But it was, it was a symbol of their ultimate loyalty to the God. So we may cringe at that, and we should, yet people commonly throw away the lives of their unborn children just because they don't want them. There's not even a recognition that this is a gift that this is something that is valuable. We're simply throwing it away for convenience sake, for comfort's sake, for money's sake, or whatever. So at least the ancients valued the life they were offering. And I know that sounds strange, but ponder that for a moment, right? Um, some pagan who's offering their baby as a sacrifice to a god values the life of the baby. Somebody who simply has an abortion for convenience sake doesn't even have that kind of value. Well, the meat from a sacrifice was not eaten <clears throat> by this non-existent God. Obviously, you know, you bring the sacrifice and you lay it before the God, and the God's not there, and the God's not eating anything, right? So, um, what are they going to do with that meat? They're just going to throw it away, they're going to let it rot, they're going to burn it. Well, what they did is they just, after they had set it before the God, then they just took it to the marketplace and they sold it. And they would sell it alongside uh, other meat as well. The problem arose in these pagan uh, cultures that someone who bought the meat in the marketplace who was entertaining a Christian would say, oh, this was offered to Zeus, right? This was offered to Apollo or, you know, uh, this, would, uh, this was offered to Athena. And as soon as they said that, they were taking what was nothing more than meat and they were associating it, connecting it to this false god. So now what happens when you eat that? Well, you may wound the conscience of this person who thinks that you are uh, somehow giving uh, your uh, at least tacit allegiance to this god or that you are entering into some degree to a worship of this god. Um, 
you are, they might think, this pagan might see you eating that meat and thinking that you are acknowledging that that God actually exists and you're just laying you know, Christ down alongside this God. And again, I mentioned India earlier, but um, there, <clears throat> this is a polytheistic culture. There are 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon of gods. And uh, I had, I never had uh, a Hindu roommate, but I had friends who had Hindu roommates. And uh, one at least had a picture of his God that he put up on the wall. And that was, he literally prayed to it. Which by the way, those of us that think we've escaped that should be very, very careful if we come out of certain religious circles, for instance, Roman Catholicism, where there is this tendency to pray to saints, right? And they say, oh, no, no, we're not worshiping them. You're, you're, you're doing the same thing, okay? Or praying to Mary. Mary was amazing, but she was just a woman. She's not a goddess, right? She, she's not the queen of heaven. She was the earthly mother of Jesus, and that's important. But people that are praying to Mary aren't getting any hearing. So we're not... Again, I'm, I'm trying to lay us down alongside. I'm not saying us in this room. I don't know where your roots are. And I'm not trying to <clears throat> be disrespectful to our Catholic friends. I'm simply saying that, you know, that's wrong. Now, I've got pictures of Jesus in this room. There's one over there. There's one back there. There's one behind the curtain here. But if y'all ever start praying to him, I'm going to take him down. <laughs> okay? I've got a cross. You know, there's a big cross on the wall here. You ever start praying to that cross and I'm going to pull it down. Because then you've turned something that could be, you know, constructive and encouraging you to seek beyond and above that. And you're using that as an idol. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus, right? It is a representation that is designed to put our attention to, to Jesus. Um, so we have communion and we understand the communal or community property of eating. Uh, you know, when we do meals together, this church loves to, to eat. I'm surprised we don't do it. Well, I know why we don't do it more. I've been trying to be careful in the midst of all this COVID drama. It's just ridiculous. Every time we turn around, these infections just refuse to go down. We need to pray this into the ocean, guys. We really do. We need to stop arguing about face masks and, and, you know, vaccines and all that. We need to start praying. We need to pray this, that the Lord will intervene and get rid of this. Because this is stupid. This has just gone beyond. Uh, this is dumb. We're, you, we need to be tired of this and say, no, we don't agree. Right? We don't receive this. We don't want this. We're rejecting this. We're standing against this. But I'm trying to be careful. And so, you know, uh, we were going to go back into doing our monthly meals again and we started and then the infections started going up. And I'm still watching the infections in Dallas County. They're still over a thousand a week, right? Um, it just hasn't dropped back to where it was. It dry, had dropped down to where there was like around 200 a week. And uh, there were even officials from Parkland that said, oh, we've, we've achieved herd immunity. But with this Delta variant, it's just more contagious and it's more virulent. So it's, it's doing an end run around everything that we're doing. And so this is the problem. The longer we let this virus rattle around out there, the more it mutates, 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 mutates. So I am definitely opposed to mandates, vaccine mandates and mask mandates. 
But that doesn't mean I don't understand why these officials are doing what they're doing. They're trying to stop this garbage. Well, we need to be careful, but we also need to be praying. Um, so I don't know how I got that far out into that. Oh, it was food. Yeah, we love eating around here. And we have some really good cooks as well. So we get our table set up out here and, you know, and we eat. It's communal. When you eat together, you're doing things together, right? And uh, speaking of which, we're going to have our Friday movie uh, this week. And uh, little Asher is going to have a bit of a birthday celebration. It's a surprise. So if you run into him, don't say, hey, I'm coming to your birthday celebration Friday. And then you're going to ruin the surprise. Um, but that's, uh, the movie will start at 7. And from what I understand, Rachel's going to do some sort of a dinner or something. And that starts at 6. So we like eating, right? We do communion in church because Jesus established communion, right? He established the Lord's Supper. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Right? This is my blood of the new covenant, uh, which is given for you. But we're sharing food, right? And that sharing connects us. We're all experiencing the same thing together, which, by the way, is why people like to, and again, I'm not advocating these things. I'm trying to help you understand the impulse in human nature and how that expresses itself. This is why people like to drink together. They're experiencing the same thing together. This is why people do drugs together. They're experiencing the same thing together, right? So there is that connection of experience. Now, that doesn't mean you need to go out and do drugs and go out and get drunk with a group of people or whatever, but you might share a meal with people and so forth. And when we have communion, you understand. This is why this was a concern to uh, the Apostle Paul and to Christians, and they were worried about the conscience of non-Christians because there might be the perception that they were communing with the God, little g. God doesn't exist, and the Apostle Paul makes clear that they knew that here. But that was what was behind this debate and argument. Now, I'm not going to get into uh, what the Apostle said this week because that comes next. I'm going to look at this background, right? So he starts off by saying we all possess knowledge, right? Uh, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote unquote, all of us possess knowledge. Now, first of all, I want you to see that uh, the ESV puts that in quotes. And I keep saying that because there are people that might not be looking at this text, right? And it puts knowledge in uh, quotations. That's um, what we understand is happening within the text here, right? This is the context is telling us that the Apostle Paul is repeating something that they were saying. Because there, there are no quotation marks in uh, Greek. In fact, all of the texts that we, we have in texts that I would read, so um, there are a couple of different Greek texts that are basically a, a collection of all of the texts that we have and these scholars pour through them and then they come up with the best possible read. Because we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts that predate 500 AD of various sections of scripture. And so what they do is they lay these down alongside each other. Well, some of them are all, they're called minuscules. They're all in lowercase letters. There, there aren't even any uppercase letters. Hey, it gets even better. There's no separation between the words. And this is how they got 
more on a page because they were um, utilizing a scroll, right? And so they just kept writing. So you just had to know this is this word, this is this word. Now we have accent marks. So when I read like, for instance, uh, UBS 5, right? The United Bible Society's uh, fifth edition, um, then, or Nestle Elan 27, then we may be up to 28 now. Um, then I'm looking in there and these scholars have gone through and they've made, the, they've separated the words, they've capitalized words, they've put accent marks on the words so that those of us who are not uh, ancient Greek scholars, but have, you know, studied Greek so we can read it and understand what is going on. I'm giving you that information because I want you to know why there may be differences in your translations. Um, one translation, the, now ESV is very literal, but I want you to see that the translators are interpreting for you. They're saying, no, we think that this is what's going on, that this is a phrase that the Apostle Paul is repeating. We all possess knowledge. We know that we all possess knowledge. And these Corinthians were, were big on that, right? They were, you know, giftedness and knowledge. They thought that this was really important. And even the word knowledge is put in quotations here with ESV to let us understand that the Apostle Paul is repeating back their understanding of that word and not his understanding of that word or a dictionary definition, so to speak, a lexical definition of that word, okay? Um, so knowledge was a big deal for the Corinthians and the apostle affirms, he affirms their knowledge. He doesn't say, you don't know what you're talking about. He affirms their spiritual giftedness several times in this letter, but apparently they had made it plain that they were mature and they, they possess knowledge and that idols are, are false gods and they don't really exist. Well, that's what he says, right? Um, he tells us that, um, well, I'm going to get into this in a minute. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we're going to get to that. Um, but um, going down to verse four, he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So they're saying, we have this knowledge. This is nothing. The idol is nothing. And the, Ap the Apostle Paul is going to affirm that later. But see, he's more concerned about what the other person, the the non-believer specifically, or the new Christian thinks of someone eating meat that is associated with an idol. He's really concerned about that. He's not concerned about the fact that there really is a God that they're entering into communion with, right? Although he does at one point say that these gods that they offer sacrifices to are actually demons. Um, so there could be a conception or a perception there, right? Um, but Paul confirms, oh, I know that you know that. Right? I know you have this knowledge that these idols are not real and there's only one God. But this is not merely, we should understand, this is not merely head knowledge when we're talking about this. Uh, you know, it's not just conceptual in nature, but this is an experiential knowledge along the lines of when you read older translations uh, of the Bible in the Old Testament and it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. Well, of course he knew her or he recognized her. No, it means that he was intimate with her sexually right? He had a very, very intimate experience with her that resulted in a child. The knowledge we're referring to here is not just head knowledge. This is where a lot of people are with God. Oh, I, yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? Oh, good. I believe in God. This is people like this, the, um, well, 
I don't know that he was an apostle, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the, the first um, pastor of the Jerusalem church. It was about this that he said, you believe that God exists? Good, the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to just believe in your head. That's a properly basic belief, as I said earlier. But that's not enough. You need to receive this in your heart. You need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You need to surrender your will to his will. That's the difference, right? You need to trust God, have confidence in God, not just believe, you know, and forgive me if you've ever used this term, but I'm just going to tell you, I hate this demeaning term, the man upstairs. God's not the man upstairs. He's almighty God. Well, the man upstairs, blah, 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 blah. You don't know him if you're calling him the man upstairs, okay? He's not the man upstairs. You're a human. He's not a human, okay? Now, Jesus became human, and he shares in our humanity still. So if someone understood it that way and were sharing it that way and they're praying to Jesus, then I would understand, but that's not usually it. It's just a very um, a light way of referring to God. Oh, yeah, you know, I believe in God. He's up there somewhere, and... He's smiling down on me and you're not reading your Bible. And so I'm trying to get into the word with you so that we don't have that kind of uh, flippant attitude toward God. Um, but this is really kind of, you know, when these people say, no, no, we know, we know there's only one God and these idols don't exist. We're just going to plow ahead and do what we're going to do. Um, there is a knowledge of God that we're referring to here that is about personal experience. Right, so um, you know, I'll, I'll just use the latest president, whatever your your opinion of him is. I know about Joe Biden. I hear about him all the time. I hear you know disrespectful things said. I hear things that he said disrespectfully. I you know I hear you know things that that people agree with and so. But he's out there. I don't know him at all. Right? And people act like, it's, it's interesting to me, when we refer to somebody by their first name, that would typically mean we have a personal experience with them, right? We know them. I don't know Joe Biden. I wouldn't call him Joe, right? I disagree with many of his policies, but if I were to meet him, I would call him President Biden because I don't know him. And it's interesting to me that we just, we have this excessively familiar culture where we just don't show proper respect to people anymore. It's just, we just want to kind of flippantly refer to them, you know, no, you know, I, if I meet you and you introduce yourself and then I call you by your name and we're talking to one another, we're getting to know one another and that's experiential in nature, okay? Um, with God, we do have the ability because of Jesus to experience him in a personal way and to refer to him, uh, you know, even by his name. So the, the word that is often, so in your Old Testament, when you encounter uh, all capitals, Lord, L-O-R-D, but the O-R and D are lowercase capitals, you are seeing a signal that means that that is God's personal name which in Hebrew is four letters, yod Hey vav Hey, And we think that that is pronounced Yahweh, and it is related to the word to be, right? So when he, 
revealed his personal name to Moses, he said, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. All right, tell them I am has sent you. He is the self-existent one. He is the great I am, right? That's his name. He's given his name so that we can know him, but we wouldn't know him except that he chooses to reveal parts of himself to us. Now, you're never gonna know God personally until you come to Christ, right? Because he is, um, he is the, the, the perfect representative Representative, representative and representation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. That's Jesus, right? So if we're going to truly know God and not just know about God, then we need to come to Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul is talking to other Christians who have received the Holy Spirit, and so they do have that knowledge. So I'm trying to help you understand that this isn't just head knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. And they also know that there might be, uh, you know, an idol over here, it might be large or small of a particular God. You know, here's Athena or Aphrodite or whatever. But, you know, that's not a real person, right? It's, it's not a real God. It's just a statue. And we know that. And the Corinthians had come to know that. But plenty of people did not recognize that or realize that. Um, so that's what he means when he says knowledge. But he says the kind of knowledge you're referring to, just accruing more and more knowledge about something, he said that puffs up. But he said love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So that's what I gave as a title for tonight's teaching um, because I think that that is a, a really, really important thing for us to take away. Um, awareness of the truth, acknowledgement of it, affirmation of it, uh, that can happen apart from allowing the God of truth to change your fundamental attitude of selfishness, to transform your character and make you more like Christ. Um, Pastor Craig and I, a number of years ago, went to an apologetics conference. If you don't know what apologetics is, uh, it is giving reason for your faith. And that's what is behind the series that I have been in on Sunday mornings, God is Great, God is Good. It's really an apologetic series. It's giving you good reason to believe that God is, God is great and God is good, that he has created everything with good purpose and that ultimately he is going to take all of this and he is going to turn it around for our good and for his glory. So I've chosen to conclude the, our time because we could go on literally for the rest of the year with the material I have on this. But I'm gonna start a new series this Sunday. Um, and I think I know the direction I'm going. And if, I, if the Lord allows the direction I'm going uh, on the series, uh, it will be titled, Whose Report? Whose Report Will You Believe? And I'm going to cover promises that God has made to us in scripture so that you will have something to anchor your hope to, right? So you will have something to pull you out of whatever uh, morass you find yourself in, uh, whatever you know, depression or despair or difficulty you find yourself in. I just wanna give you good news. I think that that's just important. And the end of the sermon Sunday was a really a transition to that. I hadn't planned on doing it at the, to that point, but it seems at least right now that that's the direction the Lord is leading me to. Um, but 
you can have all of this in your head, right? You can study the Bible and you can know all these facts about the Bible because um, there are plenty of scholars who are, they're not believing scholars, but they are brilliant when it concerns their encyclopedic knowledge about the Bible or about theology, right? Uh, a fellow comes to mind is, uh, by the name of Bart Ehrman. And this guy knows all about the different texts of scripture and, and how these different manuscripts were brought together to formulate what we know as the New Testament and so forth. But he doesn't believe at all. In fact, he's written a number of books uh, disparaging the Bible. He's done a lot of damage to, to people. Um, so it not just, I've said this before, I don't disrespect someone who is an honest atheist. They just haven't come to the point where they believe yet, but they're open, right? Right, they're looking for evidence. But what I see a lot of, especially online, is these militant atheists that are really not atheists. Oh, I just don't believe. They're anti-theists. It's interesting. They hate God. This God that they don't believe in, they hate, right? And so where Craig and I went to this apologetics conference so that we could learn to give reasons for our faith, these guys are seeking reasons to tell Christians that they're wrong and that their God doesn't exist. I wouldn't waste my time. If I was an atheist, I'd go find something else to do. I'd be friends with Christians, sure, that'd be fine. They're probably gonna be nice to me and try to win me over and buy me food or something, you know? Um, that's just not the way that I would be. Well, in the context here, when it says knowledge puffs up, love builds up, people get arrogant when they have education, titles, knowledge. The internet has created a lot of arrogant people. People think they know. Whichever side they find themselves falling on, they call the other side all these names. Idiot, fool, moron. And it's either side, right? You may find yourself falling on the right or falling on the left, you know, being uh, a, a Christian or being a theist or being an atheist or being an agnostic. You're all idiots. You don't know. You're on the wrong side of history. You don't know anything. That's puffed up. That's arrogant because the implication is I do. My tribe, we know. You all are fools. You're stupid. You don't know. You're believing the wrong thing. That's an example. Knowledge puffs up. But even at this apologetics conference, which was good, um, William Lane Craig, who I've referred to in here on a number of occasions, uh, probably the best apologist out there right now, and I've taught through a couple of his books. In fact, I taught through his seminary level, his graduate level uh, text called A Reasonable Faith. Uh, in here in 2010, we went through the whole book and it was uh, challenging to say the least. And then he has another book that's designed for churches and uh, groups that are not uh, in an academic setting and it's called On Guard. And these are really, really important arguments to, you know, to go through. But here's the point. <clears throat> we went to this apologetics conference and you would assume with all of these people gathered together, that uh, there would be fellowship and that, you know, there would be an interest in community and, hey, we're all, you know, Christians together and we're trying to... No, there's just... Even Christians, even those that have the right knowledge can be arrogant about it, right? So I've heard it said before, you can be right and be dead right. So there's an arrogance that we need to avoid. 
but he says, love builds up. So if I'm in Christ and I know him personally and not just have a head full of facts about him or a head full of facts about the Bible, then what's going to come out of me is going to be love. And, you know, Jesus made that very, very clear. The path of love is the way of Christ. Uh, listen to what it says in Ephesians 4.15. And speaking the truth in love, we will grow up in all ways to be like the one who is the head, that is Christ. So if we know Christ, we're going to become more like Jesus. And if we become more like Jesus, we're going to become more loving. So if you have knowledge, if you have this experiential knowledge, um, you're going to become more like Jesus and you're going to become more loving, right? Um, now, even experiential knowledge can cause people to be puffed up. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, which, you know, as slowly as I'm progressing through 1 Corinthians, we might not be there till next year. <clears throat> but he talks about a... Uh, supernatural, mystical experience that he had with God. And he won't even give all the details, right? But he says that he was translated up into the third heaven and saw things that are inexpressible that you can't even explain or describe. And then he says he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Wow. To keep him from being puffed up. So you can even be puffed up about your personal experience with God, right? And this often happens with, the, with spiritual gifts. And once we get there in 1 Corinthians, uh, we're going to hit 1 Corinthians 12, and the Apostle Paul has to calm the Corinthians down when it concerns their pride and misuse of the gift of tongues. Now, we're not going to talk about that tonight. It is always a divisive topic. We're going to look at what the Scripture teaches, and I do have a side that I take on that, and you're going to like it or you're not going to like it, but I believe it's the biblical side. But the point is, a gift like that that is really not given to everybody, and I know that there are churches that believe you have to have that gift in order to demonstrate you have the Holy Spirit. I don't find that that is accurate uh, and scriptural. But nonetheless, even a gift like that can be used to say, well, these are the first class Christians over here. They speak in tongues. And these are the lower level Christians over here. You know, you're just, you know, you're just still immature, right? You're just still in, in spiritual elementary school. You're in, you're in spiritual diapers because you don't exercise these. So see, even experiential knowledge can be puffed up now. It may be a real experience, experience that you've had with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit, but you're turning the experience into an idol. So think back. Have you ever had one of those experiences with God, right? You were praying and you just, you, you felt like you were floating. You, you know, felt like you were in another dimension or the Lord spoke to you or you prayed for a miracle and the miracle happened. But see, when you turn to the thing, instead of the God who does the thing, you turn it into an idol. Do you realize that even prayer can be an idol? I, I hear people all the time say, you know, prayer changes things. And I understand what they mean. But if you really force that, you're saying that the act of prayer is what is changing things. And that's not what's changing things. Okay? Prayer is a conduit right? It's a cable. And if that cable, that 
plug is not plugged into power, it's nothing. It's just a cord, right? But if it's plugged in, there's power coming through it and it will turn these lights on. We need to be plugged into the Lord. So I, I need the cord. I need the cable. You've got to pray. Okay. Otherwise, I mean, so there are outlets all around this building. But if I don't plug into the outlet, you don't get any power either. There's power available. It's sitting there. You got to plug into it. And then you got to turn whatever it is on. Okay. Now, granted, we have devices that are battery powered. But guess what? They have to be charged, don't they? And that requires a cable. And that's kind of you. We're told to pray without ceasing. Um, and that's a constant conversation with God. But you know you're going to go through times where you're not able to continue speaking to the Lord. And that's when you're on battery power, right? But you got to keep charging that battery. And that's why you need to have times of prayer. You need to get alone with God. You really do. It's vital. It's essential. If you want your sanity in our world, you need to learn to be a prayer warrior. You need to stop talking to yourself. You need to stop watching endless videos and listening to secular music and all this and letting that recharge you because it'll make you feel better. Like I read books all the time. I go to movies and, you know, all these sorts of things. And I may see something that I like, but it's, it's not going to really recharge me. I've got to plug in, right? But he's the power. But what I'm saying is any of these things can become idols and I can become uh, puffed up about them. Right, I know a lot about the Bible. I've been studying the Bible since I was 17, basically, right, or 16. I mean, I came to faith in Jesus when I was 16. Um, and I had a pastor that preached verse by verse, just like I'm trying to do with you right now. That's, that's you know, my past and my history. And I took notes, right? And I bought a study Bible about a year or two years later, and I still have it upstairs, same Bible that I had. Bought it in, I think, 1980. Became a Christian in 76, uh, 70, 78. Um, and I think about that in 1980. It's a New American Standard open Bible. And I mean, it is fallen apart and it is underlined and it is highlighted because that's what I took to church and I took it all seriously and I had a notebook and I took notes. I have stacks of notes from my pastor, Right. I try to get you guys on, you know, on Sunday just to do a little few fill-ins. I mean, I'm listening. I'm paying attention. Before I ever went to college and went to seminary, I was already loading up on the Word. But see, I can just be proud of that and know a bunch of stuff about the Bible and not be helpful to you at all, right? So for me to continue reading, you know, I need to plug in in prayer, but I also need to receive from the Lord, and I do that by reading the Word. But... I need to turn on the power and give you something, right? So that's why this is as important to me, maybe more important to me than it is to you. You have spiritual gifts. You may know them, you may not know them. But if you're bored in your faith, it is likely because you're not exercising those spiritual gifts. When you begin to exercise, and that's why we need to gather together, by the way, you know, um, I'm seeing this to be more and more important because especially in the wake of COVID, I mean, people just have any excuse not to come to church now and they just don't, right? So, you know, one Sunday we'll have a decent group of people and the next Sunday we've got, you know, it looks like nobody in here. And, you know, I, I put it online because uh, especially on Wednesday, not everybody can get all the way out here. They're working through the day and whatnot and I want people to have access to it. And, 
You know, people get sick all through COVID. I want them to have access to it. I want them to be able to share with other people. But that is not a substitute for being here, right? It's a good alternative and it's available to you. And I'm thankful that it's there for you. But gathering together is important. That's where we exercise these gifts. It really, really is. And so I read this stuff often, you know, people are justifying why they don't go to church or they're trying to say, well, you know, church is not just, you know, or, or, or they'll say worship, you know, you, you can worship God anywhere. And this is true. But here's interesting news for you. Church is not just about worship. It's about fellowship. And you can't have fellowship sitting in front of a screen. You just can't. You're not having fellowship there. You can worship. You can grow and learn, but you need to be here with these other people. Even if you don't even talk to anybody, just being around these people multiplies how you're receiving this, all right? And it just it involves you being open, okay? And I try to encourage our people, uh, those that are they've been here longer, to be more open. And those of you that are newer, um, not everybody is, you know, gregarious, and I want them to be. Um, some people are and some people aren't. So don't feel like, you know, people are not being welcoming or come and tell me they're not and I'll do a little one of those. All right. Because <laughs> we all need to step up and just, you know, get out of our comfort zone. All right. So all that to say, we need love builds up and love doesn't happen with one person. Love happens among us. Right. Love requires at least two people. The idea of self-love is nonsense. It's nonsense. Love extends out from the self, right? This idea, well, you can't love other people unless you love yourself, nonsense. You need to let God love you and then let that love flow through you. We say, what about that verse that says, love your neighbor as yourself? That means you have to love yourself. You already do. You take care of your needs, right? Did you eat? Do you shower, right? Do you take care of your needs? That's, love is not a feeling, right? Love is acting for the benefit of someone else. Loving yourself in that sense is acting for your own benefit. We're all fairly good at that, but we're not perfect at it. Some people, you know, they're into self-harm. They don't like themselves, much less love themselves. But see, those folks don't need to be taught to love themselves. They need to be taught to open themselves up to the love of God. That's why Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you. Love one another, even as I have loved you. Love is not the new commandment. There is a new reference point for it. Previously, love for others was as you already love yourself. Now Jesus said, you have experienced the love of God through me, right? All the way down to the last day with the disciples when he comes into the upper room to share the last supper with them and they're all still arguing over who's the greatest and nobody has bothered to be a servant and put out a bowl of water to allow people to wash their feet. These people walked in open-toed sandals on dirt roads, and when they ate together, they reclined, right? So with us, your feet are under the table. With them, you're laying right here, and here's somebody else right here, and their feet might be like right here. Yeah, it would be good if your feet were clean when you're that close together. Right. So for us, it's wash your hands. And, you know, in the midst of COVID, you know, hopefully you wash your hands a lot. Um, 
But for them, it was this idea of washing the feet. So, you know, John chapter 13, Jesus takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around himself and goes and just silently, doesn't call attention to it, starts washing their feet. He gets to Peter and Peter's like, whoa, 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 because that's a job for a servant, which none of them wanted to be. They wanted to be bosses, not servants. Literally, read the synoptic gospels. These guys are constantly arguing about who's the greatest. James and John sent their mommy to Jesus so that she could get him to promise that one of them would be on his right and one on his left in his kingdom. Wow. We think of these, you know, the, the apostles and their martyrs and all that. No, not till after the resurrection. They were an absolute mess. They did not love one another. They did not love God above all other things. They loved themselves and they wanted to be bosses. And so what happens? Um, Jesus just shows them, washes their feet. And he says, now what I've done to you, that's what I want you to do to, to one another or for one another. That's love as service, right? Jesus said, uh, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then, he died on the cross as that ransom, right? And then overcame. And that's why we continue to call on him and worship him. So that's where we need to be. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We're to build one another up. So I told you I wanted to end a little bit uh, early so that we can have a, a time of uh, prayer and you can ask any questions if you have any. So uh, those of you that joined us online, we appreciate you. We'd love to see you here Sunday at 11. And uh, thank you so much.